Anyway, I, uh, I got to say, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited that you guys are here. But honestly, uh, what I'm most excited about is that we've come to gather here. And we haven't gathered for just any reason, but we've come to gather under the name of Jesus. And I believe that when Jesus is present, he's here to work in the hearts and the minds of every individual that is open to him doing so. Uh, I just believe that as we're stepping not only into a new year, but into a new decade, that there is something incredible that God wants to do in and through you if you are open to that. And so any, any time that we come to gather under that name, under the name of Jesus, I don't expect us to come in here one way and leave the same way. So I came here with expectation. I hope that you did too. If not, I came with enough for all of us. So I am pumped. And uh, with that being said, are you guys ready for the word of God? Uh, if you would flip or scroll with me to Matthew chapter 3, we are going to be in the 13th verse of that third chapter. And I want to read an incredibly important moment here together in the life of Jesus. He's about to be baptized by his cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist. And to be totally honest with you and upfront, uh, this is one of those stories in Scripture that I can so easily scoot by. Uh, I don't know if you guys are willing to admit that you have those moments, but as someone who studies this book for a living, I have those moments, okay, where I'm like, okay, it's like the first gospel, it's Matthew, it's in the third chapter, it's not even like you can say, I'm going to read through the New Testament to start the year. You're probably going to get through Matthew chapter 3, okay? Uh, if you don't, that's a problem, uh, but if you, do, if you do, great. You've probably read and heard the story of Jesus' baptism multiple times in your life, and if you're like me, you've got multiple grandmas that have had the painting of the dove descending on Jesus somewhere in the home, and so you've seen it. It's been portrayed, and my hope is that as we read this, we'll see something with fresh eyes and with a re renewed spirit, because there's a lot going on here that I'm excited to jump in and talk about, but let's read it first, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. This is what the Word of God says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Will you guys pray with me really quickly before we jump into the message here? Well, God, we are just so thankful for who you are and what you're doing in this place, uh, in Dahlonega, in our lives, uh, in, in these moments where we just come to you and say, Lord, have your way. Have your way in my life, Lord. I don't know uh, what the purpose of 2019 was or even the years prior to that. I, I don't know what 2020 holds, but Lord, I know that you hold the future and I'm looking to you. Uh, and so, Lord, you, you know every single person, what they're going through, uh, what's going on in their head, what they're carrying as they come into 
this place. You knew that they were going to sit where they're sitting. You know how many hairs are on their head. And you know that you are greater than all the cares that they have in the world today. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would do something that only you can do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the 16th century was kind of the time to be alive if you wanted to be an incredibly famous and well-known artist because it was kind of in the middle of that Renaissance period when we had guys like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci creating works of art like uh, the Statue of David, um, the Sistine Chapel, the Mona Lisa, and the painting of the Last Supper, right? But In the shuffle of all of these famous works and famous artists, I doubt that many of us have heard of a guy named Raffaello Sanzio da Urbino, or as his friends would call him for just obvious reasons, Raphael. Uh, But he died very early on in his life. Otherwise, we would probably know him as well as we know some of these other guys like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci that are completely revered, right? Uh, I even read one article that had this to say about this guy, Raphael. It said, Raphael was the supreme Renaissance painter, more versatile than Michelangelo and more prolific than their older contemporary Leonardo. So this guy, high praise, was an extremely gifted artist. Well, fast forward to the 19th century, and former uh, British Prime Minister George Hamilton Gordon purchases a painting of the Virgin Mary because he believed that this guy, Raphael, he's the one who did the work. Well, the problem was, unfortunately for him, shortly after he purchased this painting, they investigated it, and it was immediately downgraded. They said, hey, this is not an original work of Raphael's. It's just a really solid copy. Sorry, but no, no can do for you. You paid for it. It's yours. And so he was like, whatever. I guess I just have this painting that's worth nothing now, right? So it just kind of like sat around, and it didn't seem to have any significant value, and so in 1899, he sold it for 25 bucks, which, you know, in 1899, 25 bucks isn't like 25 bucks today. For those of you who are curious, it's just a little under $2,600, so not, not cheap, but not like what you pay for some works of art. Well, fast forward one more time with me to the much more recent past in 2016. An art historian comes across this piece of art, and he's like, Here's the thing. I know that this was around the time of Raphael. It looks strikingly like the other works of Raphael. I got to check and make sure that this is not a copy. Because if it's a copy, it's like a legit copy. And so he had it cleaned and investigated with much more advanced methods that we had in 2016 as opposed to, you know, the 1800s. And after it was investigated and inspected, it was, it was come to the conclusion like, hey, um this is an original work of Raphael's. Like, this is not a copy. This is, this is a piece of history that we have in our hands. And what once passed through the hands and opinions of many people before and was eventually sold for just 25 bucks, it can now hang up in your home for just $26 million. Steep upgrade. Now, why tell you that? Why do we care about a painting as we read about the story of Jesus' baptism? I tell you that because many of us, if we're honest, especially as we're looking at all the new, going into a new year, new decade, we look at the canvas of our lives, and if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really like what we see. 
We used to see a blank canvas that was full of potential, and now all we see is this irredeemable mess. And like the painting, we've passed through the hands and the opinions of so many people that we're starting to struggle to see the truth, and we're actually kind of starting to believe a few lies, that uh, maybe God doesn't care about the messiness of my life. Or maybe he doesn't care about the fact that I feel like I've become a mess myself. Uh, some, of, some of us, we feel like we've literally passed through the hands of people. You feel used by people that you trusted. Uh, you thought that they wanted to be friends with you for who you are, but you found out they wanted to get acquainted with you for what you do and what you have. Uh, some of you, you've tried to patch relationships that you thought might work uh, sexually, and you've given yourself away more times than you really care to admit, and it's not because you just felt like, oh, this just isn't important, but it's because you're like, this is going to keep the relationship together, right? And it just... It didn't, and so now you're wondering, is a spouse ever going to be interested in this mess I feel like I've created? Uh, and maybe some of you, you're in here and you feel like, gosh, you know, people are really looking at me like I'm, I'm getting older, you know, for the chronologically superior people in the room. Everybody's like, man, I just, I, I don't know. It's like everyone in this generation feels like you can just Google everything, and they don't think gray hair counts for anything, and they think wisdom is cheap, and so kind of like what gives, you know? And even beyond that, some of us have put an opinion, have had an opinion put on us so many times, we're starting to wonder if it's a fact. Your dad called again, you thought maybe he called to just talk or finally apologize, but he's just calling you to see if you're still screwing things up like he thinks you usually are. Your mom called and she's, you're hoping she's calling just to maybe grab dinner or something and she's calling really just to make sure you're still on track to becoming who she wants you to become and not who you feel like God has called you to become. Maybe you feel like you need to go to your boss with that idea for the fifth time that he said is trash every time. And you know, I really should be stepping out in faith in starting that business I feel called to do, but I'm actually kind of starting to believe that what he has to say is true, despite the fact that I feel like God called me to it. But let's be honest, even in the midst of all of those examples and the many more that I could give, uh, most of you, you don't need anyone else's opinion put on you because there ain't a person in the world that's harder on you than you are on you. At least that's how I am. People will come up and say the meanest things. I'm like, that is like the second meanest thing I've heard today. You should have heard what I said about me earlier, right? You think about all the things that have happened to you, all the things that you've done in your life, and you just look at what you feel like your life is this mess now, and it's not what you hoped it would or could be. But I got to remind somebody really quick this morning, that Raphael painting passed through the hands and opinions of so many people because they failed to recognize the value of what they held. No person who had it or place that it had been was able to take away from the fact that it belonged to a master artist and that he had handcrafted it himself. See, the messiness of its history didn't determine its value. Its maker determined its value. It was worth infinitely more than the $25 that it sold for, not because of where it had been or anything. You couldn't cheapen its value. It was worth what it was worth because of whose it was and who created it. But because of some messy circumstances in our lives that have shaped the way that we think of and view ourselves and the way that we think of and view God, many of us end up selling ourselves short on something that God paid everything for on the cross. See, I just believe that the more secure we are in what our Heavenly Father thinks of us, the less likely we are to try to run away from the messes in our lives, and the less likely we are to think that I'm just this completely irredeemable mess myself. In Matthew chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism. And in those first few verses, we see just how much Jesus cares about the messiness of your life and my life. 
Look again at those first few verses, 13 through 15. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, man, and you're coming to me. And Jesus said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. So what is happening here? Jesus comes to John on his own. And John sees him and is like, what are you doing here? Do you even like this is not this is not a place for you. You can't sit with us, Jesus. Like this is this I'm baptizing repentant sinners. You are like the furthest thing from a sinner. Like you don't I don't need to baptize you. If anything, you need to baptize me, which is going to confuse some people here, but like hello. And Jesus is like, "I know these things, but currently it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness." And what Jesus is saying is that it is important for him to identify with the messiness of sinners now so that in the future we can identify with his righteousness later. That's 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's saying, I'm going to take this sinful identity to the cross to crucify it, and when I rise, all who believe in me will rise to new life in me. Jesus cares about the messiness of your life. He cares so much that he identified with your mess enough to step into it before any of us even called on him. And he said, I'll take it on. Every sin, mess, and broken piece of your life, I'm coming to take it and make a way through the wounds in my hands and my feet because God's the God of the unfair trade and it works out really well for us. I... um. I read this article a few years ago about this Japanese art called Kintsugi. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. It's crazy. Um, but Kintsugi is an art that repairs broken ceramics or pottery with a lacquer that has been mixed with gold, silver, or platinum. I think we might even have a photo of it somewhere. But the idea behind it is that rather than hiding the damage that has been done to the piece, you magnify the beauty of the repairs that restored it. So the repairs actually make the piece more beautiful and valuable than it was prior to being broken. So rather than seeing a bunch of broken pieces and being like, oh man, we got to get rid of this stuff. Like, that's not what you do. You look at what once was and realize what's about to be made out of this is even better. What's to come is even better. You don't look at the broken pieces and throw them together and seal them with a golden lacquer and say, it's as good as new. Like, you don't do that. You put them gently back, each fragment, into its original place, and you say, there it is, more beautiful and valuable than it's ever been before. See, no matter how messy our lives are, no matter how bad that person hurt us or what they said about us, no matter what we've done or what's been done to us, Jesus Christ came down to this earth, picked up all of our pieces, and sealed us together with the lacquer of his blood that he willingly poured out for us. I'm here to tell somebody this morning, you are made beautiful by the blood of Christ. You aren't made of the messes in your life. You are made in the messes in your life. The messes of your life do not define you, but they are refining you. The messes where God does some of his most beautiful work. But even as I say that, I know that many of us in here have been around people, and dare I say churches, that have made us feel like even though God saves us, he's willing to save me, I don't think he loves me or really likes me because look 
at what's going on in my life. Look at what I've done. But that's why I love verses 16 and 17. The order of events here is important in what we read. You got to think about this. Jesus has yet to launch his public ministry. He's performed no miracles. He has not preached the Sermon on the Mount. He has not done any healings. He has done none of those things. He hasn't even been tempted by Satan yet. But look at what happens. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, the Father's voice said, your Father and my Father's voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you catch that? That before Jesus does anything, God calls him beloved. And he does the same thing for you and I. Do you want to know what God thinks of you? If you have repented of your sins and believe in Jesus as the Son of God, your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven, and God is pleased with you, not because of anything that you or I have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done, and that's really good news. But even though a lot of us hear that with our head, because if I gave you a pop quiz before you to answer that right, a lot of us know that with our head, but the reality is we struggle to really believe it with our heart. How different would your world be if you woke up every day and you didn't start just like scatterbrained all over the place being like, I got to perform as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as an employer, as an employee. But if before you did any of that, you sat quietly on the edge of your bed and said, as I go in to perform all the duties that I am supposed to perform today, God is already pleased with me because I am in Christ Jesus. How different would your life look? But we live in a very performance-based culture and society, right? And the moment that things start to get messy, we kind of start to wonder, oh my gosh, am I going to matter to anybody anymore? I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that your messiness of your life, it matters to God. And, and God is not a God of, of the current culture and society. He's not a what have you done for me lately. He's a look at what my son's already done for you kind of God. God God's character is unshakable and his character is unconditional love towards his people. What God thinks of you is covenantal. It's not conditional. There is no mess in your life that God looks at and goes, holy smokes, they did it again. I, even I can't clean that up, my word, like, golly, they keep doing that, they just, they just, they promised me, golly, they prayed yesterday, promised me they'd never do that again, and there she goes, you know, like, he doesn't do that, no mess has left a stain so deep that the blood of Jesus couldn't clean it up, and, and that doesn't mean that there are no consequences to anything that we do in this life, and we just get to skip through life carefree, and everything's rainbows and butterflies and sunshine, that's not what I'm saying, what I am saying is that the enemy will use the messes in your life to try to distract you from the blood of Jesus. The enemy will use your failures to try to sabotage your faith, but the problem with his tactic is that God doesn't work around failures in your life. He works in them, through them, and he frees you from them. Last time I checked, God didn't work around the cross. He hung on it. Jesus said, your will be done. 
And he willingly went to the cross, passionately endured the suffering that you and I deserved, and victoriously stepped out of the tomb over sin and death. If you think your mess is too messy or that you failed too often or done or experienced things too shameful or horrific to come to God, can I just tell you something that's going to hurt a little bit on the front end but ultimately going to help you heal? Um, uh, you don't have that kind of power. You don't have that kind of power. Your mess doesn't have that kind of power. To say that your mess is too much is to say that the cross is too little. And what God thinks of you is ultimately not contingent upon your ability to do things well. It's, it's actually solidified through Christ's actions and doing things perfectly. The power of the cross is greater than the messiness of your life and the feelings that you feel. You can't outrun a love that knows no bounds. One of my favorite um, stories, it's actually a movie, I don't know why I said story, good morning everybody, uh, is Disney's The Lion King. And um, if you haven't seen this, first off, uh, what's wrong with you? Uh, second off, you've had 25 years, so I'm about to spoil parts of it, hello. Um, they, they just re-released the thing, it looked like, my wife and I, we went to watch it and I was like, did they use like real animals? What's going on? I feel like I'm watching National Geographic right now, it's like the craziest thing ever. But... All that to say, I digress, and this is the greatest movie in the history of filmmaking. And so in the movie, do you remember the stampede? Of course you do. Uh, Mufasa goes to try and save his son, Simba, in this stampede, right? And in the midst of all the chaos and stuff, what Simba doesn't know is that it was really put on by his evil uncle Scar, but after everything, all the dust clears, all the dust settles, he looks and he sees in the middle of his gorge his dad's body, and he looks lifeless. And so he goes up to his dad's body, and he's like, get up, dad, get up. And then Simba starts crying, and I start crying, unfortunately, and then you all start crying, because we all can admit that that's the saddest moment in the history of film. And as this is happening, Simba's thinking, this mess is my fault, I killed my dad. This is my fault. And what happens in that moment is something that happens to many of us when we find ourselves in the middle of a mess. He looks behind him, and right behind him is an enemy that has swooped into the gorge, and he starts whispering in his ear, and he goes, Simba, what have you done? Like, what, what, is your, what are your friends going to think? What's your mom going to think? You can't come back from this. And Simba's like, what do I do? What do I do? And he says, run away and never return. And Simba runs away. And things look good for a minute, right? I mean, Simba goes out and he's, you know, he's chilling. He's like in paradise with Timon and Pumbaa, Hakuna Matata, that whole situation, right? Like he's doing his thing and it looks incredible. But deep down, he knows something's missing. I'm not fulfilling my calling. I'm not walking in my purpose. And I know that it's bigger than the mess I created, but I'm struggling. And that's when the old wise sage Rafiki unsung hero comes in and knocks a little sense into Simba, quite literally, and is like, hey, bud, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but your dad's alive. And Simba's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I killed my dad. It's like the messiest moment of my life. Why are you bringing stuff up like this? Uh, and he says, come to this pool of water. I'll show you. Your dad's alive. And so Simba goes and he looks in this pool of water because Rafiki says, go and look in there. There he is. And Simba's like, yeah, he's crazy. Uh, like, no, dude, that's just my reflection. And Rafiki says, no, look harder. <laughs> and Simba's like, okay. And so he does. And bubbling up in the pool of water, he sees his father's reflection within him. And what does Rafiki say to Simba? He said, you see, he lives in you. 
And Simba's story isn't unlike many of our own stories. There are messy moments in your life that come into your head immediately that as I solicit that word messiness of your life to your thoughts, you think of one or two specific things that you're still trying to get over. But I'm here to tell somebody this morning that you are very much like Simba's story. It doesn't matter what an enemy whispered to you when your father lives in you because that's greater than anything that you could ever do, any mess that you could ever find yourself in, even if you're the one who committed it yourself. God loves to work in the messiness of life. And to be quite frank with you, that's why I love the prodigal son. I love the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, it's Jesus' greatest parable. Uh, It's not an opinion, it's an undeniable fact. And for those of you who uh, may not be familiar with this story in the prodigal son, Jesus is telling this this parable, this story about a son who asks his father for his portion of the inheritance before his father dies, which as we know, some of you are like, I have a college student that lives with me that's very much like that. Uh, And so, and what happens is that's the equivalent of saying like, hey dad, I have plans for me. You're not dying fast enough. I value your cash more than you. So can you just go ahead and give it to me and can we quit waiting on you to die? And the dad gives the son that that inheritance, and he goes and squanders it in a foreign land, and the son, he finds himself in this moment where he's like, finally, he's lost everything. He doesn't have any food. He's eating literally with the pigs and pig slop, and I love starting in verse 17. We can relate to this part, I think, so well. It says this, but when the son came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I love this. The son is in a mess, and what does he start doing? He starts doing what we all start doing. He starts trying to think like very logically about how he can make this up. Like, Can you imagine splitting half of your bank account and all your assets, and someone's like, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm just going to say sorry, and that's going to be good enough. You know, like it just We just start thinking through what can I possibly do, and the son goes, nothing. I can just repent and hope that he'll even let me serve him. But in verse 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. You see, it was a very serious problem for a young man to lose the family inheritance. That would still be a serious problem. Hello. But it was even more serious for a young Jewish man to go and squander that inheritance in a foreign land. That was an offense that meant you were going to be completely cut off from the community that you used to call home. You messed up too badly. And I want us to think about this. The son ran away and he took half of his father's fortune. And you know his dad, he's got this great spot probably in the city, and it's overlooking the city gates. He's got this balcony that's like incredible, like all the kids want to come to his house, and he can see as far as the eye can see as he's looking out, just nothing but just desert. And every morning he, he goes up there and he, he thinks about his son, makes a pot of coffee, just goes up there and, and sits and does what any parent would do, just no matter what my kid did, I, I hope they're okay. And this morning is a little bit different because as the father goes up, he's, he's particularly overwhelmed by the thought of his son as he's looking out over the city gates on this balcony and he's like, I'd trade everything I got just to see my kid again. 
Is he okay? Is he even alive? Like, where, where is he? And as he's looking out over the city gates, he drops his cup of coffee because he sees something that he hasn't seen in years. He sees a figure making his way towards him, and he's, he's looking out, and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, I'd recognize that walk anywhere. I know that walk. I made that walk. And, he, and he's standing over the edge of the balcony, and he's looking, and, and the figure's getting closer and closer, and he's like, that, that's my kid, that's my son. His hair's messed up and he's dirty and messy and broken and cut up, but, but it's him. And as the son approaches the city gates, he's wondering, am I even gonna be accepted as I make my way back here? Is the community gonna cut me off completely? And he's been reciting this speech for miles through his tears, just saying, Dad, I'm not, I don't even deserve to be called your son. And he looks up through his tears and he sees something that he definitely should not be seeing an older man in Jewish culture doing. He sees his father sprinting out to meet him outside of the city gates. And he gets gang-tackled pretty much by this dad because of the way that he feels this compassion. And he starts reciting through his tears everything that he's built up. And he's like, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's just repenting, just vomiting all his thoughts and feelings on his dad. And his dad says, get the best robe, get shoes for his feet, get a ring for his hand. My son has come home. We're throwing the feast of feasts tonight. What is the character of our God that while you're still a long way off, he rejoices as he sees you and he runs to meet you in your mess. You can prepare a speech. You can do whatever it is that you feel comfortable doing. But as you make your way back to your father, you don't take a lesser role in the eyes of God. You are ultimately a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, even if you found yourself wandering. God called Jesus a beloved son, and he calls you beloved right now. And you know what's crazy? Even as someone who preaches all the time, even as I say the words, God meets you in your mess, I'm like, golly, that's so cliche. What does that even mean? God meets me in my mess? You mean holy, pristine God, perfect God meets me in my mess? But you know what? The more that I, I thought about it and I was looking at the scriptures, I was like, you know, when God made man in Genesis, it says he made him from the dust of the earth. And then he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus lived anything but the idea of the perfect life. I mean, yeah, he lived a perfect sinless life, but he wasn't afforded the kingly comforts that you would expect kings to enjoy. He didn't rule from a palace. He was homeless. He didn't have servants that were feeding him grapes and waving his face with palm branches. They were laying palm branches at his feet as he rode into Jerusalem one last time before he was murdered. He didn't wear a crown with jewels. He wore a crown of thorns. He didn't sit on some ornate throne. His throne was an old rugged cross. He didn't send others out to battle to spill their blood to protect his kingdom. He spilled his own so that he could bring you and I into his. He was anything but your typical king. He was everything that we needed and everything that we couldn't be. God doesn't work around the messes in your life. He works in them. It is by dust that we even came into being, and it is by blood that we came into receiving everything we could ever need in Jesus Christ. Life is messy. The gospel is messy. Thank God. Your mess matters to God. 
It belongs to a king written by the author of life, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and God can use any mess in your life, past, present, or future, for your good and his glory, no matter how dark or difficult it may seem. You know, really, if I could sum up my whole sermon in a sentence, I would say this. Jesus has never been afraid of a mess, and he's for sure not about to start with yours. He's not about to start with yours. Let me pray for us. God, I am... Sometimes you can just feel the heaviness of circumstances, and I don't... Newness brings with it a lot of possibility and opportunity, but it also requires that we let go of some things. And God, I pray that people in here would know that your blood gives them a blank slate, a canvas that they totally can do something new on through you. God, we can't do it in our own strength. We need you. And the good news is that we don't have to do it in our own strength. You've already done it. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we enter into a new year, a new season, a new decade, that you would do what only you can, that you'd do something new, something better, something beautiful. Pick up our pieces, God. Remind us what you've done with them. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.